People, thank you very much for being with us. Today, we have Robert Kikobad. Is Kikobad. that the way you yeah. pronounce Kikobad. Kikobad. <laughs> or the key guy that goes back, something like that? Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so he is the director of the Guild of America, DGA, director of Guild of Canada, DGC, and producer, Guild of America with over 20 years of experience in the, in the feature film and television industry. So Robert, uh, let's start by saying that you have a career or you had a career in financials and investment strategy as a financial investment strategist. Yes. So um, that's quite a big change, Robert. Why don't you talk to us about that? How did you become a producer? Um, so I grew up in the uh, uh, in a place called Boulder, Colorado, Westminster, Colorado to be exact, which is a suburb of our capital city, Denver. Uh, and in Colorado, we don't really have a film industry or a big commercial industry, or we have a sports documentary kind of background uh, industry going on there, at least at that time when I grew up there. And I've always been fascinated with movies and stuff, but, you know, not growing up in L.A., not knowing anybody, not going to like University of California, Los Angeles or University of Southern California or NYU, any of the war, uh, established film universities, if you will, had no idea how to get in. Uh, but I always loved the ideas of going to movies. I love television shows. Uh, but yeah, like anything in life, you kind of just find your way. I graduated from college and took the first job I could get, which happened to be in, in finance, if you will. Uh, primarily, believe in our uh, estate planning and dealing with, unfortunately, uh, when people pass away. <laughs> so it was uh, honestly a very hard job emotionally, you know, seeing people uh, lose their loved ones, but still at the same time trying to help them navigate the financial world. Uh, but at the same time, I just, I kind of just took the job. It wasn't something I really wanted to do. And I think a lot of us fall into that, you know, especially, yeah. um, I'm pretty much a first generation American. Yes. My mother was raised here, but her family wasn't and definitely my father wasn't. My father immigrated from, from Iran back in 1962. So it's always be a doctor, be a lawyer. You know, I'm sure you guys uh, hear that, uh, or an engineer like my father, uh, just wasn't for me. Uh, I took after more after my mother, who was very much an artist, used to do watercolors, stuff like that. And so I just found myself not knowing what to do. So I started taking some night courses at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And the professor I had there had uh, worked in Los Angeles for a number of years. And he just said, look, if you really want to do it, you have to go to the center of all the action where all the decisions are made. And for film or television, that is Los Angeles. Uh, still, you know, today. still today, right? today, still, you know, most of the decision makers are all there. I mean, you do have some more higher level corporate decision stuff made back in New York City. But if you want to work creatively in film and television, L.A. is still the place to start your career. My professor was saying that at the time, you know, you have to go to L.A. because uh, that's the center of everything. Like I said, New York is more on a corporate level. So I eventually just saved up a little money, not a whole lot. At the time, my brother was going to law school out here. So I kind of just lived between him and and uh, just lived with him, actually, on, on his couch. <laughs> so I kind of figured out what I was going to do. And what I eventually did do is I did some courses at UCLA Extension, which is very much like what I was doing back in Colorado. But the advantage of doing that at UCLA is it's not UCLA proper. It's more like continuing education, stuff like that. So the classes at night are actually taught by working professionals who That's either want to get back. Yeah. Either they want to get back to the community or they are retired and just want to help people. Right. Yes. So I did courses there and eventually I did an internship with uh, the former CEO of Sony at a company called Mandalay. 
And that, that's eventually how I really started getting in. And they liked me and they helped me get a, my first job in, on, on a television show. And that's how I kind of started. Well, that's that's quite a change. But uh, yeah. do you do you trade? Do you do any financials actually these days? You know, I do. I do a lot of budget building. You know, figuring out what things cost and how we're going to do it and how we're going to determine how much it costs and where we're going to determine how much it costs. So, so yeah, in the I, industry that you like, which is filming. Yeah, I, it's interesting. You know, I'm a guy that didn't do very good in math in, in elementary or high school or even college. In college, uh, but I'm really good when it comes to budgeting. I'm really good when it comes to numbers. But you know what? I, what I am really good at is logistics. And so, before I became more in the physical production side of stuff, so in my career, I started more in the creative side, more actually finding projects, bringing them to the boss I had at the time, developing material, mostly uh, primarily in television at that point, television series. And, you know, it was more traditional series at that time. So the, the cable was still kind of out there, but satellite then started. Up with, there was definitely no streaming at the time uh, when I started. So I started in realistically like 97, 98. So and at that time, there was none of that. It, it just wasn't any of that. <laughs> so um, did that for a number of years and eventually kind of grew out of the role. I was working with a, 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 one of the directors, pilot director. And he just said, hey, you know, you're, you're smart. You know what's going on. Go find some material you want to produce and let's try to sell it to somebody. Wow. So, yeah. So he gave me my opportunity and I brought him this project called Carnival uh -huh. uh, that a guy named Dan Knopf wrote. Um, and, you know, how I found it back then. This is Remember, this is like 1999. Mm -hmm. So I just I had no idea. I didn't want to go to the agencies and stuff like that that we normally work with because, you know, at that time I was just a guy helping out a bigger director find material right sure. uh, and so you know i always get stuff sent to me on his behalf so everything would come to me to try to get to him which is okay but i wanted to find something on my own and i found this script online believe it or not back then i just typed in unproduced screenplays i did like a google search or yahoo search i can't remember what it was at the time. <laughs> and uh sure enough you know this guy said hey download the first two acts of my teleplay or the pilot script i should say and ended up downloading the whole thing. And I read it. I loved it. I met with him and then eventually took it to my boss. said, this is what I want to produce. And he said, okay, let's go. And, you know, and brought his management team in and we talked about it. And we went to HBO and we sold it to HBO. So at the wow. time, yeah. So, and then it went for two seasons. Uh, at the time, it was really uh, an innovative project. Uh, things that had never been done before. It was set in 1935 Depression in America, you know, right before World War II, the launch of World War II. Mm -hmm. It was a really big uh, project for HBO at the time. Uh, Chris Albert, who was the president and CEO, had to fly to New York and tell the, the board, I guess, or whoever it is, that he's not going to pick up two pilots. He's only going to pick up one because that's how much more expensive carnival was of course of course and so he had it which was a big deal at the time so and now i look back at that budget and i'm like oh that's nothing today <laughs> but back then it was a lot and that kind of helped me get going and i sold a couple other things with dan the creator of the show but you know being non-writing television producer at the time uh, just was almost impossible quite honestly very 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 hard and i didn't understand physical production a lot at that time um and i just started learning more and more about that having produced a pilot and then eventually over the years, I segued way more into physical production, less creative. I still do some creative, have projects set up, but I make my live my daily living, if you will, by going on to projects, figuring out how to execute them, budgeting and planning sometimes. And they're not just television stuff or movies even. Uh, you know, I worked with Alejandro in ER2 doing his VR project called Carnet Arena. That was basically a LACMA exhibit. You know, I, I kind of get 
assigned, if you will, or presented projects that quite honestly, a lot of people just can't figure out. Yeah. They know they want to do it. And so I always joke with people, I tend to get the job that either nobody else wants, (laughs) right? Or it's the job that, hey, if it works out, that's great. If it doesn't, we're going to blame him. I always joke. (laughs) So, and I've made a very good career of that. Um, so and yeah, do you, do you do you provide those services actually right now? I mean, if someone oh, yeah. in Latin America has has a great idea, they don't know how to make it happen, whatever. And do you provide that that consultancy service? Yeah, absolutely, all over the world. In fact, when I originally worked with Netflix, I worked with them for a year. Uh, Andy Fowler, who was an executive there, I had worked with at Disney when I was doing a movie called Tron Legacy. And so when he had brought me in over there to Netflix, you know, it was more in the visual effects side, but there was also some elements of uh, physical production. But I was in, at the time, they call it international originals. And at that time, it was to try to help local filmmakers realize projects they really want to do in their local language, in their what local film, you know, not just the director and actors and stuff, but everybody. So at that time, everything was globally centralized in Los Angeles. Now that that's changed since then, because that's been almost five years now. Uh, Yeah. So we had LATAM, you know, they had APAC, we had EMA, which, you know, for me, pretty much I covered everything, but Canada, the United States and uh, the United Kingdom. So anything other than those three countries, other countries and other continents all over the world, I would would help out. So I met with filmmakers, localized filmmakers all over the world, primarily having more on the visual side at that point. But then also, if we had to talk like, you know, physical production stuff, I was able to help out or I'd redirect it back to the proper person who, who was at the studio to speak to. Let's say someone in Latin America has, has an idea, has a Bible, uh, different, uh, different episodes of uh, Saga, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they think that it might uh, fit within the Netflix uh, local production, as you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And someone wants to hire you. Uh, how much money are we talking about? that these people must have in their hands? Um, you know, it's hard for me to say how much I would charge them uh, because what I normally charge a studio, a regular local language show or local would never be able to afford it. Just they're, they're two different levels. So, you know, I'm a little bit older now than I was when I started. Um, so I, I try to, in that case, I really try to see what is the person trying to do? Mm-hmm. Who is the person, you know, and that doesn't mean established because truthfully, I wouldn't even know because I'm not from that part of the world. Right. And then I would just I would really more look and see what they're trying to do to see how I could help. And if that means evaluating it and not really getting paid much of anything, that's fine, because I know that, you know, I can't do that all the time. But I do do that um, because I just know that everyone can afford to do that. And I also know how it feels to be like, how do I start? Where do I start with? Because, you know, uh, I've been doing it for 22 years, but, you know, I was there. And most people who were there know that. And I also think it's different than when I grew up, you know, uh, and I'm sure it's different for you when you grew up. Is that, you know, now with streaming and everything being worldwide, there's a lot more opportunity to, to get things done at a higher level than one is normally accustomed to or just to even get something made that in your own country would never make. They would never make stuff. And that's what made Netflix very successful. It was like, oh, we're just going to go make all these shows. That would have never been made years ago in their own country. Like never. Yeah. You know? So, and look at like Squid Games in Korea is a classic example. That thing, I'm not sure how long that script has been around, but my understanding was that no one in Korea wanted to make it. And Netflix makes it. Look, it's one of the biggest shows in the world. And so 
that is the difference today. You have Amazon trying to do the same thing. You have Disney starting to do the same thing. I say, you know, Amazon trying to do the same because they're, they're doing really good stuff over there, but they haven't launched all their stuff. They're really smart people over there. And Netflix is clearly smart people. Uh, but more importantly, they're giving opportunities to people that you normally wouldn't have. And I think that's an awesome thing. So it is different, definitely different than when I grew up. And so well, now we are talking about the script and Netflix and everything. So what do you look in a script when deciding if you really want to be in that project or not? What do you catch your attention? You mean as far as coming in to help produce it or to produce? Yeah, as a producer or as a producer yeah. side. Um, it, it depends. Of late, most of the stuff that I try to or I get asked to do or to look at tends to be very uh, heavy on a technological side. Uh, so a lot of times we call it an LED volume. If you look at Mandalorian as an example, that's shooting in an LED. Uh, sometimes it's more about uh, motion capture work, performance capture work. More something that relies heavily on technology is ten. With tens will be what most of the stuff I get asked to do today or to look at. Um, so a lot of things it's like, what are they trying to do? Uh, who is it? Because I can, I, I, I'm at the point in my career where I, I do luckily have the choice of what I want to do and not want to do. Mm -hmm. And I find that if I know someone is just absolutely difficult, it's not worth it to me. You know, like life is too short, especially after the last couple of years. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. So I, I have, I have the luxury to say no. Um, right. I have the luxury to just be really honest and say, I'm sorry, you don't have enough time to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, so Um, I, I kind of try to find the right match and I don't mind a challenge, you know, if they're behind in time or if it's money, but truthfully, a lot of it is who, who, who are the people that's a big part of it for me. And, I, and again, that doesn't mean being established as much as it is. Do I know this person's just difficult? Do I know this person's just not a good person to work with? You know, like, I don't, I don't need to do that. I don't think most people need to do that, but sometimes I understand why you need to do. It. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's say someone starts like, uh, sending, some draft for a drawer and then comes with a story and then put it in a Bible and then pitch the Bible to what? The producer, investors? How does, yeah, how does it, depends, it depends on what it is and how you want to go about it. There used to be these, what we call hard and fast rules. So you go to the studio because the studio is going to pay for it. Then you go to a network if it's a television show because that's how it used to be distributed. Uh, now, a lot of times the networks are owned by the studio and sometimes there is really no network. It's a streaming service. And then you have localized streaming services that just acquire things. So I don't think there's any hard and fast rule. I think whatever you're trying to do, it depends on if you have a relationship with somebody somewhere that means something to somebody, even if that person is not going to do your project, but they are known in the community in the filmmaker community or known with investment bankers or whoever, you know, you're trying to get to, and they will validate what you're trying to do is worth doing. That's sometimes enough to at least get you going. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think there's any, um, like you have to do a, and then you have to do B. I don't, I don't believe in that. I, I think you, play to your strength you try to find out um you know who, who you have the best relationship with but let's say you don't know anybody you don't know any money guys you don't know any prominent filmmakers in your community you have and you're just sitting there blindly right well a lot of times what guys do is believe it or not they try to drum and that's the thing with social media that can be a good thing you, you know to just i don't mean just send people blind emails i'm like building up hype you know because a lot of times creative people can can sell something by getting it all pumped up and just enough to draw someone's attention like hey i want to do that 
you know, that's the advantage of social media today. If, if one's willing to do that, right. Again, you just got to try to play to your strength, but just sending blind emails and stuff that that's tricky. It can happen. I mean, Stephanie sent me one. Let's see what happened. One, 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 one. <laughs> that worked. That, that worked. Work. <laughs> work. So it, do, it does work, you know, but I, I think the biggest thing, Victor, is to take away is like, don't get caught up on just one way of doing it. I think you have to be professional on how you do it. That means if you're going to go talk to one person, give them time to respond before you move on to somebody else. Because what happens in everything that happens to me too, you become a little impatient. Like you want to talk to everybody, right? Yeah. If you're talking to a director, give that director a bit of time before talking to another director. That doesn't mean you don't go talk to a producer or a money guy. You can do all that. You yeah. kind of just want to be respectful about the people you're approaching, regardless of what level they're at. So you at least give the, them the time that they deserve, you know, to respond okay. to. So, so if we want to help someone in Latin America that has a project and they got to a point where they already have a Bible, for example, uh, it would be it would be good to have different strategies. That's what you're saying. I mean, uh, try to yeah. pitch it in the different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I don't think you just do one thing. He, and he, and he, he, I advise you don't do just one thing, you know, and the thing is that what the biggest thing that someone has to uh, learn to accept, and it's an, it's an everyday struggle for everybody is to be patient. You know, like how long someone might take to get back to you. General rule of thumb that I try to follow my whole career is if I send something to somebody, you give them two weeks. Then if you don't hear from them, you just ask them play like, Hey, I'm just following up. Thought ask because. What happens is some people the very next day are saying, hey, what's did you read it? It's like, well, yeah. they have a bunch of other stuff going on. You know, they have even regular day life, families and everything else, let alone work. Exactly. So you just have to learn. And that, and that just comes with time and maybe age, I guess. But I usually try to follow the two-week rule out of the gate, even to this day. Even with people I really know, you know, I always try to follow that. Uh, and then you don't want too much time to go on because then if too much time goes on, they just forget. Yeah. Right. <laughs> unless you hear from them which can happen yeah so yeah it's about a bit of a balance in that but yeah and robert you are uh, i'm sorry so you are right now an executive and consultant at netflix right yeah so i consult for for the studio so um i do get assigned projects to act as an executive on to degree and i say to degree because i'm not a full-time employee for next i'm just on a contract basis for them right um, and I've worked in that capacity before with them uh, because what I'm doing with them is fairly new in the overall grand scheme things, uh, which Netflix has always been innovative at is pushing the envelope and doing things differently than other people have done. I mean, yes, yeah, so there is a lot of people who say we've done virtual production. We're doing big LED, what they call LED volume builds, uh, which is true, but not, you know, to have a whole infrastructure, to have all the manpower that a studio is trying to uh, deploy on that and being really driving the technological side of them, no other studio is really doing it at the level at which, uh, which Netflix is doing it currently. So, and it's all new, fairly, fairly new when you really look at it. And for example, in that era that you are, well, mm -hmm. I know now that we're talking about Latin America and Netflix, and there's a lot of uh, Brazilian, Colombian, also Argentinian movies and series Netflix that I have been, we feel identified because we are from here and we know sure. also the movie from Encanto and Disney, we feel identified because it's from Latin America, the music and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we are talking about, because we were talking about the investors and how we pitch the Bible or how we pitch everybody. So I, how difficult is it to catch the eye of that kind of people 
do we have to, is it words that we have to express or is it just an image that we have to to show? I, you know, it depends on who you're talking to. I mean, uh, like I, you know, if you ask me today versus 20 years ago, the reality is more people just like to look at something. Very few people really read everything, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately. Uh, but that's not the case for everybody, clearly, right? I think you have to do both. You have to have something written really well. And I think if you can give them some visual element to catch their attention, you should be able to try to balance both. I think it's a good thing. The one the one thing is, you know, with the part of the world that you're in is a very important part of the world for, honestly, the studios. Uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's a massive population, right? I 50 mean, million, I, I guess, in the U.S., right? Something like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And but not, not just that, it's, you know, outside of English, I think it's the, the second or third most spoken language in the world, right? I think it's right. English and Spanish and then French and maybe uh, Arabic to some degree or Chinese, if you want to just go by pure population. But <laughs> landmass wise, Spanish is spoken everywhere, you know, like, and I mean, obviously Brazil is Portuguese, but again, <laughs> worldwide. Uh, but it still has a sense, and one of the things in, in Latin American films and, and just the culture is a lot of it is, is, is a course of human nature, right? There's a lot of like strong characters that people identify with. And even, even though I do not speak any Spanish other than Cerveza <laughs> or Baño, like literally that's the only two things right now, I can watch a Spanish film or a Spanish language film and enjoy it because I can relate to the characters because that, that is the strength of a lot of the films and projects coming out of the part of the world that you're in because you don't have the money to do all these big spectacle things like you don't you, and you don't need it quite honestly mm -hmm. uh, it's about the characters about the human journey right some of the best films that have come out of that region and I think that will probably be the case for the television shows too it, it, is it nice to have some more money to increase the production value of course right everyone wants to make it look great and that's and that comes with again, that's the advantage of someone like Netflix. I'm really proud of them to have been a part of that initially in the international space is that to give them the money to actually achieve their stated goal in a way that you can show the world, like, look, you don't have to come from LA. You don't have to come from the United States. You have the talent. You just need someone to believe in you and back you financially to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I think that's, that's the advantage of someone like Netflix that really, really started. I really feel they've really started that. They're very open mind. They're very open-minded, but that's 100% correct. So, I mean, you know, I know that other studios are trying to make a massive push in that part of the world. And I don't mean like just servicing local language, you know, or, or Spanish language projects and filming it there. I mean, like really giving the filmmakers in that region uh, boots on the ground, education, support, equipment, training, things that the United States used to do a lot of that we kind of moved away from, unfortunately, for better or for worse, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but nothing will ever replace, in my opinion, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much equipment you have, is the person doing the job. That's the most important thing, regardless if it's a man the or job, woman. Right. Yeah, regardless if it's a man or woman or whatever, it doesn't matter. It just, that that person is, is what countries should invest in. Because I've been all over the world and the first thing people go, oh, I can build the stage and I have all the money. I can buy all the camera equipment, spend millions and millions of dollars doing that. And I just say, that's great, but who's going to do the job? Like, who's actually going to do the job? And then you realize they haven't even thought of that. And then what? You're going to spend millions and millions of your own country's money to then bring in a bunch of foreigners to do it and not train it. I mean, like, yeah. literally, yeah. You, know, yeah. you do find that with Absolutely. people quite often. 
So is, is that what you do actually as a consultant for Netflix, uh, Robert? Is 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 that? I mean, you you try to make an assessment and take a look at the whole picture. And, and, and give your support to Netflix in that regard? Not, not in my current role, no. That was a previous one. But even even my current role, we do look at global, what's going on globally, what's going on. And, you know, myself and my colleagues always say, you know, it's great. We can build that thing. Yes, we have, we can do that thing. But who's going to actually do the work? Mm-hmm. And then when we say who's going to do the work is how do we uh, give opportunity by educating and training up people, Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like, like myself, I was lucky enough that the person uh, I worked for for a number of years gave me an opportunity, but I also learned a lot from him by making a lot of mistakes. And thankfully he didn't fire me. I think he wanted to fire me like four or five different times, but it, <laughs> but it did. And I'm very thankful for that. Uh, and that's how you learn. You actually learn more from your mistakes, quite honestly. Yeah, sure. Uh, what about uh, content, Robert? Uh, they, people say, most people say that content is key, right? And uh, is, is Netflix out of content? Is there enough content for Netflix from a different part of the world? How is it going? I, I would say if you ask anybody, there's never enough content. And what I mean by that, there's never enough good content. Now, good content doesn't mean you spend a lot of money. That, 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 I think that's a, um, not just not true. Because I've seen many, many, many projects. I'm sure you've gone to many movies. I've seen and you spend a lot of money. And you're like, oh, my God, this is unwatchable. Or this is not fun. Or it's like... You don't even remember it after you leave, right? You just don't remember it. And then there's many times I've seen things that you can tell were made with very, very, very little money, but you don't care because it's like so well made. The acting is fantastic. The directing is good. The cinematography is beautiful. Everything is right. And so is there enough content? I would say, is there enough good content? You know, because there are just some people like, yeah, we don't care. We need the content. We need to fill the coffers because we have to constantly change that doesn't matter if it's Netflix, Disney Plus, you know, Amazon, Apple, it doesn't matter. But they all do want good content, but they also know that they need to fill the coffers with stuff. Yeah, sure. Well, Robert, we are coming to the end of the podcast and we are very pleased to have you here. What would be and some final words of inspiration for all the people that is watching this podcast and have their dreams already uh, on their hands and haven't been able to put them to work? Sure. I would say, look, you know, um, what is going on today isn't what went on 10, 15, 20 years ago, even five years ago. Technology has allowed us throughout the world to communicate like we're doing right now. You know, if you were to ask someone five years ago or 10 years ago, can we do what we're doing, talking on the Zoom? People would look at you like, what are you talking about? And you could do that in every part of the world, believe it or not. I mean, I even go, I'm traveling to Africa here in a few weeks ago on a safari because I go, they're trying to go there annually. And there are people that literally, literally do not have a cell phone, but yet they have an iPad. I can't figure that out for life for me, how you have an iPad and you don't have a cell phone, but okay. You know, and they're watching content. I don't even know how to get the content, but it's, it's pretty interesting. And I think when you look at the fact that technology has allowed us to all to be able to communicate, it also allows people opportunity to work. And what I mean specifically, especially if you're an artist, especially if you're a writer, especially if you're going to get into directing stuff. Yes, eventually at some point we have to physically come together to, to make a project. But there are many times, too, because there's so many different roles in all the in making movies and TV shows that you actually don't need to be on the set. You don't need to go into an office. You don't need to do all these things. And because of the availability of Internet and bandwidth and the way things work, if you have the skill of being the artistry, 
you're going to, a lot more doors are going to open to you up than you that weren't available years ago. And I think whatever you do, stay true to who yourself is, uh, really work hard. Don't expect it to come tomorrow. Don't, don't get caught up with people going, Oh, I just got lucky. And I, you know, within one year I started doing all this stuff. It's sometimes hard not to do that, but if you stay focused and just are willing to put the time in, it'll eventually come to you. Yeah, it, it, and it doesn't matter what part of the world you're in.